Specialty Story, session number 135. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray. I hope you are having a great week, and I hope you are staying safe. With everything going on in the world right now, please know that I'm thinking about you, your loved ones, and everyone out on the front lines fighting this SARS-CoV-2 outbreak or COVID-19. Fun little trivia there. I learned, uh, which a lot of people aren't really talking about. It's kind of like HIV causing AIDS. We have SARS-CoV-2 causing COVID-19. Nobody's really caught saying that way though. But anyway, we have a great guest today, the Sherlock Holmes of uh, doctors. We have Dr. Kazi on from Emory, who is a medical toxicologist. Very, very interesting job. Very interesting specialty. So I hope you enjoy this episode. We start the conversation by discussing what initially got Dr. Kazi interested in medical toxicology? For me, it was in 2002. Uh, this was uh, the end of my second year of a three-year residency in emergency medicine at Emory. I was looking for a fellowship. I knew I wanted to do a fellow. This was, uh, you know, the, 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 first, uh, the first piece of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to do a, uh, a fully accredited fellowship that had um, a board certification. And the reason for that, Ryan, is because, and you may or may not know this from my CV or biography, I was born and raised in Lebanon, and I was an international medical graduate. Okay. Uh, when I moved to the U.S. in 2000, I had a J-1 visa, which would require you to uh, be enrolled in a uh, ACGME accredited program. Mm. Apologies for using the ACGME ac- acronym. Yep. But this is uh, the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education. Yep. And uh, knowing that I wanted to do a fellowship, because I, I wanted to be in academics and I wanted to do a fellowship in emergency medicine, and having to do a fellowship in an ACGME accredited program really left me with a few choices. At the time, it was medical toxicology, pediatric emergency medicine, and um, uh, sports medicine. And I believe maybe hyperbarics at the time was, was board certified. Now, since 2002, we've had, I think, Mercy Medical Services become board certified uh, from Mercy Medicine. But so I had these three options, you know, primarily pediatric Mercy Medicine, med talks, and then uh, sports medicine. And um, uh, personally, I felt that medical toxicology would be the best fit for me since PEDS EM in my opinion at the time was better for someone who's a pediatrician wanting to specialize in emergency medicine yeah. and not vice versa. And sports medicine was just completely different than what I really want to do as a subspecialty. And, um, that, that was really the first driver. The second driver for my decision was, um, at Emory, the medical toxicology faculty group was quite, um, quite exciting. They were a passionate group of people. They were, uh, you know, clinically, 
uh, fun to work with in emergency medicine. So I was attracted to that piece. Uh, but in honesty, I, I, I admit I was not the most uh, well-informed uh, emergency medicine resident at the time about different fellowship um, uh, pathways mm-hmm. as I am right now. And as I know, many of our current emergency medicine residents and medical students are much, much better informed than I was at the time. Yeah, it seems like it seems like every every new class and every new generation they just know so much more. They're so much more plugged into what's going on. That's so it's funny. Agreed. I, I I wonder many. I wonder often if I would have ever been able to get, get into the residency <laughs> if I was competing with with the, with the current generation. Yeah. Yeah, that's fun. So talk about medical toxicology because it's not something that I've covered here on the podcast a lot. It's not something I don't think a lot of students really understand what it is. So if you could break down what exactly is medical toxicology, um, could you do that? Wow, that's a, that's a very, uh, very convoluted answer <laughs> <laughs> uh, that you're uh, getting ready to hear from me. But I'll, I'll try to simplify it. You know, I've like I said, this was, um, uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you about this, uh, Ryan, because um, I've really been interested in spreading uh, the news about medical toxicology amongst uh, medical student learners mm-hmm. uh, and emergency medicine residents and other residents as well in different specialties. But certainly in med- in the, at the medical school level, I've always felt that there was an p- opportunity to introduce this uh, field at that uh, stage in, in a person's uh, life and career. Um, because medical toxicology is a is a subspecialty, is a is a board certified subspecialty by the American Board of Medical Specialties. So it's similar to cardiology, gastroenterology. In the House of Medicine, it has its own stature, and it is uh, currently sponsored uh, by two other by three other boards: Preventive Medicine Residency Board, the, uh, the Pediatrics, as well as Emergency Medicine. Uh, although at the beginning of this specialty. Uh, creation, uh, pediatricians were commonly uh, uh, going into it. Uh, currently, the great majority, around 90%, I would say, are emergency medicine graduates who are feeding into the specialty. This is why uh, we are trying, uh, as uh, academicians in this area, to spread the news about this specialty amongst other specialties, like general medicine, neurology, uh, family medicine, pediatrics, preventive medicine. Because currently, it's really... Uh, uh, dominated by emergency medicine, which is not a bad thing, but it's good to have diversity, as you know. Yeah. Um, the specialty uh, is quite broad in, in its, in its uh, areas of expertise. Um, the, most people think of medical toxicology as someone who uh, assesses and manages acute overdoses of medications. Mm-hmm. You know, certainly, that's a, a common practice pattern that, that we, we are involved in, or practice pathway. But that's definitely not the only thing that we do. Um, medical toxicologists are involved in the assessment and management of chronic environmental and occupational exposures and poisonings. So think of lead poisoning, environmental exposure to lead in children. Think about occupational exposures to mercury or to other chemicals. Uh, some of them are known chemicals. Some of them are less known. Uh, and some of them... Um, we know a lot about their toxicities, and others are still being researched. So we we look at that occupational environmental piece as well, and we are experts in that. So we have clinics where we see people uh, on an outpatient basis, like a medicine doctor or like a neurologist. We also uh, work in um, 
in, uh, well, at least we overlap with disaster medicine and emergency preparedness because we are experts in chemical emergencies. Think of the hazmat, hazmat accidents and disa- chemical disasters, mm-hmm. also radiation injuries. So ionizing radiation, non-ionizing radiation. Think about people that are uh, contaminated with radioactive material after a dirty bomb explosion or a nuclear weapon detonation. How do you assess their health effects? How do you potentially treat some of these? Uh, the principles are uh, overlap with toxicology because it involves personal protective equipment, decontamination, and sometimes chelation, which is one of the uh, uh, medical skills that we, uh, we are experts in, is chelating some of these um, toxins out of the body when indicated. Yeah. Um, uh, we also get involved in uh, in uh, forensic cases occasionally. Occasionally, we are asked to give, provide an opinion about a forensic question, a laboratory question. We're not really experts uh, in analytical toxicology as as our lab medicine colleagues, but we certainly overlap with them and have some expertise uh, in this area that is sought after occasionally. Um, we are also educators. We are educators at emergency medicine programs, at medical schools, where we play roles in, in various components of the curricula at some schools like pharmacology, for example, is a, is a good example. Uh, we also are uh, involved in prevention of poisoning. So we do a lot of public health prevention through, through our, works, uh, our work at the, one of the nation's poison control centers, where we are either medical directors or assistant medical directors. Or um, we are just consultants. We cover the poison center for any medical backup question that the poison center staff are unable to field on their own. Um, We are doing research uh, nationally and internationally, answering questions about antidotes, answering uh, questions about toxicities, uh, looking at ways to prevent or tools to prevent poisonings. And we do that in the US, of course, and internationally, like I said, where there's an area of growth of our field globally. Um, don't forget envenomations, snakes, scorpions, spiders, marine envenomations, stingrays, marine poisonings, ciguatera poisoning, pufferfish poisoning, uh, botulinum toxin, ricin toxicity. All of these are within our uh, areas of expertise. Wow. Um, I could go on and on. Some of our colleagues, <laughs> it sounds like it. Some of our colleagues now are working in addiction medicine. Yeah. You know, with the opioid epidemic that is uh, that we are experiencing in the U.S., there's a big need for additional specialists to take care of our patients with opioid use disorders. And medical toxicologists, because of their expertise in opioid overdose, or in drug overdose in general, think of uh, THC or uh, amphetamine overdose and toxicity, we have also uh, played a role and are playing a role in treating patients with addiction uh, problems, specifically with opioid use disorders, by providing them with medication-assisted um, therapies and treatments. For example, maybe you've heard of buprenorphine, mm-hmm. which is a uh, drug that is used to help uh, patients with opioid use disorder, uh, uh, you know, stop seeking the opioids illicitly and being on a buprenorphine replacement therapy. Yeah, um, that's a big area right now that we are involved in. Um, uh, that's the addiction medicine piece. And then uh, and then lastly, some of our colleagues uh, play a role in industry. So they work for chemical industry, pharmaceutical industry, where the their employers looking at expertise in assessing toxicity 
from uh, different uh, chemicals or pharmaceutical uh, products that they are developing. Wow. So it sounds like a very good field for someone who likes to do a lot of different things. Um, I think, <laughs> I, I would say yes and no. So you will find that um, some of us develop more interest and more uh, you know, activity in a sub-area. So it's really difficult to be uh, uh, covering all of these broad topics. Yeah, we all, you know, it's a two-year fellowship, so so you know, you spend a lot of time uh, learning this, and then beyond the fellowship, you spend the rest of your life learning about. It. Yeah, um, it's a life learning process. I think specialists or people that are interested in life life lifelong uh, learning. We are all curious uh, individuals. I would say we're passionate about what we do because um, you know. It, it it's really a fun specialty that that teaches you a lot of fun fun facts honestly you know i always tell my wife that uh you know uh i'm a wonderful uh, uh person to go out to dinner with because i can tell stories all night long yeah. she she disagrees <laughs> with that but uh, you know we know about different things mushroom poisoning uh you know snake bites uh, terrorism incidents related to chemicals yeah. or radiological agents uh, so people are tend to be uh, passionate about it, uh, interested in life lo- lifelong learning, but they do t- tend to specialize in specific areas. For example, for me, I practice. I, I, you know, I, I focus a little bit more on ionizing radiation, non-ionizing radiation, uh, global toxicology development, so development of toxicology capacity around the world. Um, but of course, you know, I, I tend to dabble in some of the other, these other areas as well. Yeah. And of course, I take call for the poison center, and I actually see patients at the bedside in the clinic as well, and 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 do research and uh, teach uh, fellows, residents, and medical students on a regular basis. So it sounds like you mentioned seeing patients at the bedside. You're an emergency medicine physician trained, and then medical toxicology fellowship. Are you still seeing patients through the emergency department, or are you mostly in the hospital rounding on patients who who need your expertise uh, just from the medical toxicology side of things? So um, I work in the uh, medical toxicology service at about one month, uh, one week per month. You know, in my practice with my partners, I get to be the attending on the talk service uh, one week per month. We are an outpatient service. We don't admit our own patients, so we consult. And we see these patients in the emergency department when we are consulted by an emergency physician or by an uh, internal medicine, neurology, or trauma surgeon, uh, or ICU physician uh, at the hospital. And we also, during that same week, have our clinic day where we see outpatients uh, in the clinic. Now, when I work my emergency department shifts as an emergency physician, of course, I see... Uh, over those patients all the time, but uh, and I use my expertise in this area, mm. but I do not necessarily wear the hat of a medical psychologist when I'm seeing those patients. As a matter of fact, I would consult my partner who's on call uh, during that day to provide their, their expertise and manage this case beyond my shift, because as you know, we do our shift and we go home. It's good to have uh, the service uh, following up on them and making sure they're okay. Yeah, okay. What are some of the biggest misconceptions around medical toxicology? I think um, some of the big misconceptions about medical toxicology uh, are more pronounced outside the U.S. I think in the U.S. we are still struggling with some some uh, areas of uh, misconceptions, but in general, uh, we are not forensic toxicologists. You know, we are not. There is a big group of toxicologists 
around the world that are actually forensic toxicologists, but they're conceived as clinical toxicologists when they're not. Same with laboratorians. We are not uh, analytical toxicologists. And uh, we have colleagues that are analytical toxicologists around the world that are often thought of as clinical toxicologists when they're not. We are not pharmacists. Uh, we work very closely with clinical pharmacists, especially at the poison center uh, level and then at the uh, academic settings. But uh, we, uh, do, we are not pharmacists. Um, we um, are uh, available for bedside consultation and make a difference at the bedside. Maybe some of us, some people think of us only at the set, in the setting of a poison center. So a medical toxicologist is at a poison center. They don't see patients. No, we do. As a matter of fact, as you know, there are many more toxicologists, medical toxicologists than poison centers. So many of us, most of us are not hired by a poison center. Mm. Unlike me, for example, I am hired by a poison center. But if you compare the number of poison centers in the U.S. with the number of practicing medical toxicologists, you realize rapidly that you have more toxicologists than poison centers. And those individuals are taking care of patients. Yeah. And they are making a difference. You know, research has shown that these medical toxicologists participating in the care of these of patients at the hospital, they can save resources in terms of lab testing that is that may be unnecessary, uh, stewardship of antidote use and re other resource use, and then shortening length of stay by, uh, you know, helping with the uh, medical assessment management and clearance of these patients uh, to appropriate resources rapidly rather than, uh, you know, waiting an extra day at the hospital in the hospital as an admission. So that's not an area that I think we can play a bigger role in, uh, in uh, communicating about to the public and other professionals. What percentage of your patients that you're seeing as a medical toxicologist, are, are you trying to figure out what has gotten into them, whether uh, through, through uh, animal bites or insect bites or ingestion versus a patient coming to you saying, I participated in the Tide Pod Challenge, and so you know exactly what, what's going on. That's a great question. and I, I, I missed mentioning that earlier on when you first asked me a general question. We are kind of a Sherlock Holmes uh, at the hospital, and we do get these mysterious cases on a regular basis. I would say the majority are known overdoses, but many are, uh, many, a good number, although not the majority, are mysteries. Some of them are more mysterious than others. You know, um, we uh, look for patterns. Uh, we are experts in pattern recognition and linking up a physical exam finding a symptom with a lab finding, as well as potentially maybe a vague history of something or an occupation. We do this all the time. I did that. Uh, um, you know, I give you many examples where we've done that with the pufferfish poisoning in um, in the Sultanate of Oman, amongst uh, five. Uh, uh, five individuals who went fishing and uh, got their own fish and ate their fish and became sick. Um, the case of oleander poisoning in Saudi Arabia when someone ingested uh, a, a plant. We didn't know what it was. We just we just saw the EKG. Uh, the potassium was elevated and we knew this was a potential a cardiac glycoside later on found to be uh, oleander uh, ingestion. Um, we uh, do get consulted when uh, a patient uh, an illness is undiagnosed beyond the internal medicine, beyond the, typically we come in after internal medicine, intensive care, neurology, and then we get 
the tox consult at that point. And sometimes psychiatry even consults us. So mm. we do get these uh, uh, mysteries that we are asked to assess. And sometimes they're not toxicological. That's why we get good at, we do get a little bit better than others in uh, going through the infectious disease uh, possibilities or autoimmune possibilities, uh, psychiatric, mental health illness, because we, we have to. Uh, we have to weed through all of these. Yeah. What does call look like for you? So, um, so typically call is, um, so that, that, that call could be to a poison center or to a hospital. So you have to separate both, both of these. And I take call for both. I actually do also telemedicine call, uh, telephonic consultation call for Lebanon. The American University of Beirut. So I have three uh, three areas uh, that uh, that you know throw calls at me. Um, luckily, at the poison center and at the hospital level, I have my fellows who are my first call. So they screen the calls for me. Of course, they manage uh, the uh, data collection, the initial assessment and plan, and they staff these calls with me over the phone, or at the bedside if we are rounding, for example, or it depends on the case if I'm at the bedside. So um, how busy it is, you know, typically a medical toxicologist in training is supposed to have at least about 250 bedside consults per year, I'm sorry, per two years to graduate. And of course, we uh, typically the fellows uh, bypass that number and then they go beyond that number. Mm. Um, and every single one of these cases is staffed by a toxicologist attending like me. So remember, if, you've, if I just told you we have about five or six faculty in my section, so you can divide those numbers by six and get an average number. Uh, the poison center, for example, uh, you know, our poison center, for example, receives about 100,000 calls a year. Wow. And if a medical toxicology fellow and attending are involved, probably about 10, 20% of the cases. So, you know, that's about 10,000 cases, let's say, per year where a, uh, a medical toxicologist is requested for backup. These are just, you know, general numbers. Don't hold me to them, please. But just gives you an idea about the consult. Uh, the telephonic consultation service at the American University of Beirut, uh, we receive about 15 on average consults per month. And that's usually uh, handled by one of three uh, toxicology attendings. So th that's from Lebanon. So I hope that helps a little bit. Um, uh, you know, uh, provide some context for the for your question, uh, yeah. for the, for the answer to your question. Yeah. Now you you mentioned that you are emergency medicine trained going into medical toxicology, and I think you mentioned a, a couple other routes to get into medical toxicology. Can you remind me what those different routes are that that students can take before they start that fellowship? So uh, everyone is welcome to apply. Uh, the boards that sponsor the American Board of Medical Toxicology are those, those of emergency medicine, pediatrics, and preventive medicine. The, uh, the, the trend has been more and more emergency physicians are the ones that are ended up in the fellowships. However, we've also seen trends where we've, uh, we now have colleagues that are trained in internal medicine, neurology, nephrology, Critical care medicine. Yeah. So these are these are new uh, new uh, um, sources of fellows that we have uh, been uh, fortunate to have uh, amongst us. Even and psychiatrists. 
MedPsych particularly. The issue here is, you know, well, there's no barrier for any specialist specialist to do a subspecialty in toxicology. So of course, you have to be a specialist first. The the, the comfort that some of the barriers are the following. I'll just talk about that a little bit because you know I'm on the board of the American College of Medical Toxicology, and uh, we look at these issues because we want to spread uh, the uh, di- increase the diversity of our of our of our, of our uh, fellows and our and our uh, professionals, and we realize that we need to reach out to other specialties to do that. So um, the barriers that we've encountered uh, are, are several. One of them is, uh, you know, the comfort level of the specialist in seeing uh, potentially critical patients. So if you are not coming from a specialty where you deal with critical patients, remember, a good number of our patients are in the ICU. So you may be less comfortable in this specialty track. Does that make sense? Yeah. The other issue is the way we are being uh, compensated for uh, later on in your fellowship and as well as in your career. So the the practice models and the fellowship training models work best for immersive medicine. I, I, I hate to say that, but this is true, that that is a barrier that we are trying to mitigate as a college, as the American College of Medical Psychology. Um, we've also uh, recognized, as I mentioned earlier, we have these other practice pathways in addiction medicine or in uh, emergency preparedness, radiation injuries that may not be uh, appealing to colleagues from other specialties. So that's another barrier. So we may be too broad potentially for some some of our, uh, uh, for some specialists. Also having a two-year fellowship. We've discussed that. Is it too long? Because, you mm-hmm. know, a lot of these fellowships now are one year, especially yeah. in emergency medicine. We're competing with ultrasound or EMS. You know, they're one-year fellowships. Is this a problem? Especially with the, you know, the issues around surrounding uh, financial debt that uh, that medical students and residents incur and, you know, their need to start paying back these loans. And, you know, do they really want to do two years of fellowship as opposed to one year of fellowship? Yeah. Um, all of these, I think, are barriers. That we hope we make some progress towards mitigating them at least uh, in the next uh, years to come. Okay. What do you wish primary care physicians knew about what you're doing day in and day out to help their patients and to to help you? I think for primary care physicians, and I'm going to limit this to to your question. So people that are in in the outpatient clinic, is that is that right? Sure. Is that, okay. So if we look at primary care physicians from that perspective, I think you know I'd love to uh, build more bridges between medical toxicologists and primary care physicians in terms of how we can be helpful to their patients, you know, in, in preventing adverse effects of drugs, in um, uh, preventing poisonings, preventing uh, poisonings from environmental toxins or occupational toxins, how we can play a role in supporting them that way um, and when they assess an environmental toxin exposure. And we, we do that currently. And they reach out, some of them reach out to us. Um, we also want to make sure they understand what we do not do. You know, there are some things that we do not do that they think we do, uh, such as, you know, assessing um, some of the environmental exposure to, um, say, um, mold, you know, mold, uh, toxic, it's called toxic mold, for example. Mm-hmm. We see quite a bit of patients like that referred to us. And then um, sometimes, you know, these uh, uh, environmental um, hypersensitivity 
people are sensitive to unknown environmental exposures. Mm-hmm. Some of these things, you know, we, we tend to come and see the, we, t- we tend to see these patients, but we, we don't really do much more than just communicate to the patient, reassuring the patient. And sometimes that can be frustrating to the patient. So maybe some more uh, work with our primary care physicians before we get the referral to, um, you know, discuss what we can do and we cannot do for a specific scenario. Yeah. What do you like the most about being a medical toxicologist? I like the fact that um, it gives me more uh, more depth of knowledge in in a variety of topic topics. Uh, it allows me to be helpful to colleagues and other specialists. You know, um, I interact on a regular basis with, with critical care professionals, trauma surgeons, uh, general surgeons, um, neurologists. Uh, psychiatrist, and that, that gives me a lot of variety in what I do. And it also gives me a, a professional satisfaction that I'm actually helping other specialists uh, in their care of their patients. Uh, particularly for me, you know, um, it's also given me um, a continuously uh, uh, expanding uh, intellectual uh, library or intellectual uh, aspects of my life, you know, because I keep learning about new things and I keep understanding things better, um, about different toxins or situations. And I like that. I like to, to be knowledgeable about very variety of things. And, and I mentioned that briefly initially, um, I've taken interest in ionizing radiation and, uh, global development of toxicology for a couple of reasons. One of them is that the radiation injuries and radiation emergencies do not really have a subspecialty that is dedicated to its care. It's really covered by a variety of specialists, uh, ranging from radiation radiation oncology, hematology oncology, uh, emergency medicine, disaster medicine, uh, nuclear medicine, uh, and maybe forgetting a, a couple. But there's no real specialty that says, okay, we, we do radiation emergency medicine. And that's been an area of passion for me where I've recognized that medical toxicologists have a unique set of skills already in their assessment and management of chemical exposures that they can apply in radiation, such as personal protection, decontamination, chelation, as well as risk communication. There's a lot of uh, issues in radiation exposures is risk communication. And medical toxicologists are very good at communicating long-term risk from a specific exposure, especially when it's from something that we don't have a lot of data on. And you have to communicate that properly to the patient, answer their questions, and manage their anxiety and concerns with the best evidence available. The other piece is globally. Poisoning is a global burden of disease. We have had a lot of success in the U.S. in preventing poisonings, and we still have a long way to go. The rest of the world has even a more challenging environment due to many, many uh, issues from, from, from policy to insecurity to lack of training, lack of surveillance, lack of research, lack of resources. And I've found a lot of satisfaction bringing this skill set to different parts of the world, like Lebanon, uh, the Middle East, North Africa region where I work, the Republic of Georgia, 
the Republic of Kazakhstan, India. Um, and uh, that's been really rewarding to me at a personal level. Yeah. What do you like the least? The least? That's a difficult question to answer, of course. I think one of the things that um, that is challenging is being on call. You know, I think being on call uh, for me, you know, of course, involves being available. And uh, even if you have, uh, say, a fellow that's getting the first call, or even if you know you're working at a place where you don't get a lot of calls, you still you still have to be available. I'm lucky here uh, in Atlanta because I have several partners with me that share call. But imagine you are at a place where you only have a couple toxicologists. So you're every other day. And I was like that for uh, three years uh, at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, where I was uh, sharing call with one other colleague. So that's, that's uh, one thing that uh, is less agreeable, I would say. Um, but otherwise, I think, you know, I've made the right choice uh, in discovering toxicology. Uh, you know, I think this specialty has really... Uh, kept my uh, brain cells, uh, you know, uh, dividing, and <laughs> kept, kept me challenged and on my, on my feet. And I certainly hope that other listeners today would consider learning more about it. Yeah. I think, you know, we at the American College of Medical Toxicology have uh, created a clerkship council for medical toxicology just to try to uh, coordinate efforts amongst all of our medical student educators and learners in this area to try to share resources and, uh, and then spread uh, news about the specialty amongst uh, medical students. Uh, for residents as well, we do an annual uh, forum for residents at our annual meeting where residents come in and attend some lectures. There are kind of fun lectures and then get to meet with other program directors. We'll be in New York in March for our next uh, resident uh, session. Cool. Um, and I think, you know, uh, people like you uh, uh, creating these platforms for us uh, are essential. And I'm really appreciative of, of you reaching out to me today and allowing me to, to talk to you and yeah, nice. to your listeners about this. I, pre I appreciate your time. So if you had to do it all over again, I'm assuming it would be a pretty good yes that you would still want to be a medical toxicologist. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I often say uh, to uh, my family that I think medical toxicology saved, saved me. Uh, you know, I, I think burnout is... Um, is a real threat. Mm. Uh, professional burnout is a real threat to a variety of specialists. And uh, having the fortune of uh, diversifying what you do on a day-to-day -day basis, because my week is never the same as another week, you know? And I think that's, uh, that, that's my, my antidote, no pun intended, uh, to burnout. Uh, and um, I hope others consider that, you know, by diversifying what you do, you know, you limit uh, your risk of burnout. Certainly, we all go through times where it's completely normal to go through times where something seems dull again. But again, having other things on your plate that uh, keep it fresh, I think, is, is important. For me, you know, uh, one week per month, you know, it's rounding with the fellows and the residents and the students and teaching and you know, pontificating about cases and, you know, looking smart most of the times, not all the times. <laughs> and uh, another week I'm working in the ER, uh, seeing patients in the emergency department, taking care of patients as an emergency physician, yeah. which I also love. Another week I'm actually traveling 
traveling to a remote area where I'm uh, teaching toxicology or meeting with people uh, and governments, ministries of health, uh, discussing poisonings, ways to prevent poisonings, identifying hazards, mitigating hazards. And the fourth week, uh, I'm, uh, you know, maybe uh, taking it easy a little bit, doing some more admin work, uh, doing some research, writing a paper. Um, I hope you can uh, see how that could be uh, fun and an antidote to burnout. Yeah, definitely. Any last words of wisdom for the student listening to this uh, or resident maybe even listening to this thinking that they want to take a peek at medical toxicology? Yes. I mean, um, I think if you've made the first step and have listened to this podcast, now you want to learn more. You have to go to specific sources. This is not something that is, the specialty is not uh, a, a, a very large specialty. There are about 500, 500 600 medical toxicologists in the U.S. Um, you have to focus your efforts on specific resources, such as the American College of Medical Toxicology, the Society of Academic Emergency Medicine Toxicology Interest Group, the American Academy of Clinical Toxicology, uh, the American Association of Poison Control Centers. Um, these are all U.S. resources. The CDC, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, does a lot of work in environmental health, occupational to to environmental toxicology. Those are resources. And then reach out. Reach out to a toxicologist at your institution, in your city. It may not be in your institution. We, I've, I've mentored many uh, medical students and residents who are at different institutions that don't have toxicologists. So um, reach out, schedule a conference call, meet in person, maybe schedule a, a clinical clerkship or a rotation at a toxicology site. Um, consider attending one of these meetings. Uh, there are a couple of podcasts that are out there right now. There are medical toxicologists uh, run that you can uh, look for a free free podcast, whether it's from the Toxin 10 by uh, ACMT or uh, uh, Toxin Hound by some colleagues of ours who, are, uh, who, uh, who do this on a regular basis and others. I'm sure I'm, I'm missing some. some. But um, learning more about this. And of course, again, you know, Ryan, I'm happy to uh, guide any of your listeners who reach out to you. Uh, you can feel free to send them, to share with them my email and I'll do my best to triage them in the right direction. All right, there you have it. Again, Dr. Kazi, who is at Emory, been out of his training now for a decade and a half out in the world. It'd be interesting, as this episode is coming out in March uh, twenty, or March 18th, 2020, to, to see if with this outbreak going on, what he's doing, or, or if there isn't a role for medical toxicology in a viral outbreak. Would have been interesting to ask, uh, but I recorded this episode a, a while ago before all of this was going on. So some interesting things. I hope you learned something today. And if you're interested in medical toxicology, reach out uh, to the the medical kind of society out there. Reach out to Dr. Kazi himself. Uh, see if you can co connect with him and hopefully get some good information to lead you down this path as well. Hope you stay safe. I hope you and your loved ones are well in this time or at this time. And I will talk to you next week here on Specialty Stories. This is MedEd Media.